Yeah, that's new. Oh, boy. There we go. I desire this morning, dear child of God, that you would be a conduit uh, for the grace of God. Uh, you know, a familiar book, especially, or a familiar story, especially in this time of year, uh, is uh, Charles Dickens' um, A Christmas Carol. Probably have maybe watched a movie recently or read it recently uh, with your children. Um, now, uh, in English literature, uh, this is a classic story, but in that story, in that book, um, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens has created for us uh, the most covetous character in all of literature, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a selfish man, and he's described in, in the book, or in the story, uh, as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner who, it goes on, who was hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained, and closed off as an oyster. Ebenezer Scrooge uh, the reality is he's a picture of the selfish human heart, isn't he? Now, I'm not going to preach Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm not going to preach a Christmas carol. Because Ebenezer Scrooge is a total inverse of the generosity that we find in God. Our God is kind and open-handed. He is gracious towards his enemies. He's lavish in his love, rich in mercy and grace. And especially towards his children, our God is a generous father. After all, he gave us his best, didn't he? His one and only son, Jesus Christ. And Christian, this morning I want to convince you that if God gave you His best, He will surely give you all things. We look today at the generosity of God. That it is a provision of grace and purposeful supply. God in His generosity towards His children, uh, when He provides for us out of His kindness, it is a provision of grace. And that provision... That supply is a purposeful supply. First of all, his provision of grace. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Again, for even, excuse me, uh, 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, and God is able to make every grace abound to you, so that in everything and every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. God 
it says here, is able to make every grace abound to you. He is able. That's really the, the main thought or the main teaching, the main doctrine of this whole passage is not giving or your generosity. The main teaching here is God's ability and what He does with His ability. The word here for able is, of course, comes from the word dunamis in the Greek. Uh, and we get our word dynamite from that word, but it's not an explosive, uh, chaotic power. It's the potential, the ability to perform an act or accomplish a desired goal. That's what dunamis means. That's what, what it means when it says God is able. It is that He is able to perform an act or accomplish a desired goal. If he wants to do something, it's going to get done. These first two verses are all about what God is able to do. Paul here is tapping into the rich doctrine of the omnipotence of God. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you know that of your God? That He can do all things, and if He purposes to do something, if He plans to do something, nothing can thwart His plan. Including His plan of good for you, Christian. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. So whatever he pleases, whatever he wants to do, he does it. You know, there's a lot of things in our lives that we would like to do. But we're just powerless to get it done. I would, I would well, I would, I would like to, uh, you know weigh a hundred and some odd pounds but it's just you know it's, it's just not it's probably not going to get done <laughs> or at least it's, it's a lot of work to get there or whatever it might be you might like to get straight A's but it's difficult isn't it a lot of work goes into that uh, you might like to have uh, a fancy vacation but it just might not get done you, you might like to um, have your children know the Lord. But you can't know Him for them. You can't change their heart. But God reminds us, whatever He pleases, He does. And it doesn't matter if it's in heaven or on earth. It's not that, you know, the heaven is His realm and that's really where His will is done. But here on earth, you know, we, you know, we kind of get away with our own thing here. Uh, and, and it's a little bit farther out of the reach of God. No, even here on earth, in the depths of the, of the sinful places of this world, if God wants something done, He does it. Isaiah 43, 13, Even from eternity, God says, Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. 
I act, and who can reverse it? Who can undo the work of God? The answer is no one. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your, over, your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. There is no circumstance of your life. There is no task that God is not able to accomplish. And lastly, Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, God says, Behold, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. The God of all flesh. And he asked this, Is anything too difficult for me? Oh, Christian, that should transform your prayer life, shouldn't it? You don't think God is up for the task? He dares you to pray for the impossible. As long as it's within His will, His revealed will in Scripture. I'm not talking about praying for, the, for a Ferrari. I'm talking about praying for the salvation of your loved ones. I'm talking about His provision for your daily needs. He asks you, do you, think that, do you really think that that's too difficult for me? Oh, may we not think such thoughts. God is able to make every grace abound to you, Christian. He is able to do anything and everything that is not evil or corrupt. This, this again, is about God's power and might. And think of this, dear Christian. With an infinite amount of ability and power and might, what does God do? According to this verse, He showers you with His grace. He could do anything in this world, but He chooses to, to let His grace abound to you. Oh, what kindness of our God. With that kind of might, I would, I would extinguish my enemies. But he doesn't, dear child of God. He doesn't throw you away with his might. He doesn't condemn you with his might, dear Christian. No, he uses his omnipotence to bless you. He's able to do that. Is there any grace that he cannot cause to abound to you? No. Absolutely not. Why does he do this? Or what's the result? It is so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency. So he showers you with his abundant grace. And the result is that in everything, at every time, you have every sufficiency. You see, the abounding grace of God is seen in His provision for His children. God loves you and cares for you so much. And what does He do with His omnipotent power? He provides for you. He, he puts food on your table. 
clothes on your back, and a roof for your head. That's what he does. He could do anything, and he bothers with you. What omnipotent grace of our God. The wording here is is really poetic, uh, but it's also very intentional. It's in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency. So the needs you have, that is in everything, that is uh, in various circumstances, whatever situation where it causes a need in your life, He is able to make all grace abound to you in in that situation. At every time, meaning in various times or seasons of life, whether it's that time when you're laid off or the time when you are uh, going through a recession or a depression, whatever you want to call this that we're going through. No matter what season, no matter what economic season or spiritual season of your soul, God is able to provide, even in those seasons, Christian, when you neglect Him. He still puts food on your table, doesn't He? He still cares for you and provides for you. And then having every sufficiency, every sufficiency, that is various types of needs, whatever kind of need, whether it's food or money or shelter or anything else in between, whether it's a physical need or a spiritual need, whatever need you have, God is able to supply for that need. All are provided for by your heavenly Father. And the result is you have every sufficiency. This sufficiency is not having just enough to get by. It's not what it means. God doesn't provide for His children in such a way that, you know, well, there's a lot I have to do without, but I'm just barely getting by. Sufficiency here, the word means uh, that you have enough so that you can say, I have no more need. That's how God provides for His children. To get you to the point where you can say, so you can sit back and say, you know what, I, don't have, I have no real other need. I have everything I could ever need. Now, you might be saying in your head, I don't feel like I have everything that I need. I feel like I'm just getting by, right? You may not feel as if you have no needs, but, but if I can exhort you, that's probably not because God is uh, holding things back from you. It's probably because your definition of quote-unquote needs needs to be recalibrated from Scripture. I think a lot of our needs are wants, luxuries of life. God says He provides for all your needs. And to the point where if you learn contentment, you can say, uh, 
I, I, I don't need anything else. I got food. I have loved ones. I have a, I have a blessed church. I have, I have uh, the word of God. I have clothes on my back and, and shelter for my head. And I have, on top of all of that, I have Christ. I have no more need. Are you there, Christian? It would be good for your soul to fight to be there, to fight for that contentment. Because, listen to me, without contentment, what you're, do is, what you're doing is you're, you're blinding yourself from seeing and appreciating the abundance of God's grace to you. If you're constantly whining and complaining of all the quote-unquote needs that you don't have, you're blinded to all the needs that you do have. All the supply that God has given to you. You see, contentment looks, it, it, it looks over all the provision of God and counts that as what you are owed. It doesn't appreciate all of the rich provisions of God that he doesn't owe me but yet gives me anyways because he loves me as his child now why does he do this it says so that in everything at every time having every sufficiency the, the, the idea is so that you may have an abundance for every good deed it says so that you may have an abundance for every good deed. See, God doesn't provide for you just so that you have what you need. Though that's wonderful and gracious and kind of Him. But that's not the end of His provision. He provides for you so that you would have enough to give away to those in need. So that you may have an abundance for every good deed. He graciously gives so that you would graciously give. You see? You're just a conduit for His grace. His abundant grace comes into this finite vessel called you and I. And then out from that vessel comes abundant grace to others. He wants to use you. As a channel for his abounding grace to the world. Now, we get this because this good deed, when it says you have an abundance for every good deed, the, the good deed is the ministry or the work or the service of the context. So context is king, right? So let's um, look at the context. Start back in chapter 8. Why is he writing about what, what good deed? Is it any and every good deed? What de good deed is he talking about here? Well, chapter 8, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 8, 4. Um, we're just picking up in the middle of the sentence, I understand, but bear with me. It says, begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. So there's a need in the church of Jerusalem the church there is fallen on hard times, and the community of churches in the surrounding area have heard of this, and Paul is collecting contributions to uphold the church there in Jerusalem. And so 
all of these other churches that are like sister churches or daughter churches, whatever you want to call it, they're, they're outshoots from Jerusalem, you know, the roots go back there. Uh, they jump at the opportunity, including the churches of Macedonia. And he says, those churches, man, when they heard of the need, they were begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. So it's the ministry of the saints. And then verse 7, uh, just, But just as you abound in everything, in faith and word and knowledge, and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So he's calling the church in Corinth to join in. And it's called the ministry in verse 4. It's, it's a gracious work in verse 7. And then further down in verse 19 and 20, not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. So he's still talking about the gracious work, providing for the church that's in need, uh, abounding in this, excuse me, uh, verse 19, uh, travel with us in this gracious work uh, that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, verse 20, taking precaution lest anyone discredits us in our ministering of this generous gift. So Paul is just saying, you know, I, I put checks and balances and accountability in the handling of money because that's a sensitive topic. And this is a good model for churches. It's a model that we follow, that there's accountability and there's, there's multiple eyes on the handling of money, uh, taking precaution lest anyone discredits us in our ministering this generous gift. So the, the ministry is a ministry of the generous gift. The work is the work of the generous gift. And then that, that theme carries through right into our chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. So it's a gift, it's a work, it's a ministry, and it's a, a gift, it's a generous gift, and it's to the saints. It's to the, it's to the, to the, the, the church, uh, to the called out ones, the holy ones. And then one more in verse 12 and 13, just past our passage, just on the other side of our passage. So we're sandwiched in between this. It says the ministry of this service. There's those words again. He's still talking about the same thing. Still talking about the collection of funds for the care of the church in Jerusalem. He says the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, because of the proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of, of the gospel of Christ and for the generosity of your fellowship toward them and toward all. So you see the context. What is the good deed? Why does he, in our verse again, God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. The context before and after the good deed is giving towards the needs of the church, of the saints, the people of God. That's the point. So it's not this blanket uh, umbrella uh, application. It's specific here. It's specific. The good deed here is meeting the needs of the saints, including supporting gospel ministry. It's making sure that that church in Jerusalem doesn't close its doors. Verse 9 shows us that God's people have always been commanded to be generous with what God has provided them. Look at verse 9. 
As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. Now, at first glance, this might be, you might think that this is just talking about God. God scatters abroad, God gave to the needy, God's righteousness stands forever. But uh, this is a direct quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. And Psalm 112 is actually all about the righteous man who fears the Lord. Psalm 112 is all about the righteous man who fears God. So this is, this verse, verse 9, is talking about you and I, the believer. This is what it means and looks like to be a follower of God, a God-fearer. Psalm 112 is all about what it looks like to fear the Lord, what it looks like to follow Him and worship Him. It was actually written as an acrostic poem. What that means is each line in the psalm begins with the next letter of the alphabet. So it's in Hebrew, but for us it would be like starting the first line with the letter A, the second line with the letter B, C, D, and so on. And you have a, a long poem where you, if you just look down the side, it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and, and, and the whole alphabet. That's an acrostic. Why, why did they do that? Why did, why did they write it in that way? The purpose was for it to be memorized. It, it was the ABCs of the Christian life or the, 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 the life of the God-fearer. That's what Psalm 112 was all about. The, the point was for God's people to memorize Psalm 112 so that they know, what does God want of me? And in verse 9, one of those things, God wants me to scatter abroad, to give to the needy, and he promises that my righteousness will stand forever. And of course, uh, I can't mention this without pointing to the reality that Christ is the Psalm 1 prototype. He is the fulfillment of the God-fearer in the book of Psalms and Proverbs. So he fills this fully, uh, but the point of quoting this isn't so that we would talk about Christ. The point is that we would see, oh, this is what God expects of me. That's why he says, you have an abundance for every good deed, just as it was written in Psalm 112, he, gave to, he, gave, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. This is the way God's people have always lived and functioned. The righteous believer is the one who gives freely. The righteous acts of the, and the righteous acts of the devout believer endure forever. Christian, what you do with your money can have eternal ramifications. Righteous generosity and charity have eternal effects, and they will echo through the ages of eternity. You know, your, your earthly riches and your earthly toys will not last forever. I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, it, you know, the, the, your device will no longer update. 
It might reach a point where it can't even hold a charge. Uh, you know, you might enjoy your 4K screen, but your eyes won't even be able to appreciate it one day because you can't even see straight. Uh, your car will leak. It will get a dent. Uh, uh, your retirement will go up and down with the economy. Nothing's secure in this world. But when you abound in the good work of generosity, it does last forever. The righteousness that comes as a result of what you do with your finances, Christian, stands forever. And God's abundant grace will provide for you so that you can abound in grace towards others. You see, you don't need to fear that your giving will result in poverty. Why? Because the other side of, if you look at you know, your giving as, as, as the out, the in, on the, on the other side of the, the equation is the abundant grace of God. That's not going to run out, right? John MacArthur says, Since giving naturally seems to result in having less, not more, it takes faith to believe uh, that giving will open up God's blessing. Christians must believe that God has promised to do what He is able to do. That is, to cause all grace to abound to you. God assures you, Christian, that He will provide not only for your needs, but He promises that if you are willing, that you will have enough to continue to minister through giving. God enables us to keep graciously doing every good deed. So Christian, be a conduit for the grace of God. Now, this is the whole point. After giving us this solid foundation of the omnipotence of God and what He can do and what He does do for His children with His almighty power provide for you, once He establishes that as a foundation, then He says, the purpose of God is not just that you hoard what He provides for you. Verse 10 and 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. Now, uh, this, th these verses are abused in the church today. So we need to take care that uh, we don't make God say what we want Him to say, right? First of all, verse 10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Again, he quotes from the Old Testament. This quote is from Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. Let me just... Um, yeah, let me read, read that to you here. Uh, it says, 
For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. What is this saying? The point here is that God sovereignly works in this world to bring about His desired purposes. From beginning to end. Uh, From the rain and the snow that waters the earth to causing plants to sprout up from the ground to seeds that are given to the farmer from those plants and then to the bread that is on the table for the one who eats. From beginning to end, God is sovereign in every step along the way. That's what he's saying. He wants to feed somebody, right? He makes it rain and snow, right? That's the point. He's in charge of the whole process. We're we're, we're, uh, strangers to that whole process because we're not farmers, right? We go to the grocery store and we just pick up bread, right? And it's packaged in in a nice plastic bag for us. So this whole process is a little foreign to us today. But uh, there are farmers out there and there are seeds and there's a ground where that bread came from. And the rain came and caused those seeds to sprout. God still today, even in our modern age, sovereignly works so that there is water, there is seed, so that there is bread on your table. From beginning to end, God is sovereign. If He wants to do something, if He has a desired end in mind, He will see the whole process through to fruition. Isaiah 14, 24, Yahweh of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have counseled, so it will stand. If he intends something, it happens. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning. This is God describing himself. I declare the end from the beginning. What does that mean? He stands here at the beginning of time, and he declares what the end will be. Sounds like Babe Ruth, doesn't it? He called his shot. But, I mean, Babe Ruth has nothing on God, of course. But he called the shot before. Before he created, before Genesis 1-1, he declared the end. This is what's going to happen at the end. I will be in heaven with my people, and they will be a redeemed, sinful people that have been washed with the blood of my very son. And they will stand with me in the end and they will bow before me and worship me for all eternity. And I will love them and they will love me. He declared that before Genesis 1.1. So do you think that God can handle your provision? Do you think that God's in charge of how much is on that paycheck? And whether you're laid off or you have a job or you get that raise. 
You think God's in charge of it? Why is that company that you work for in existence? It's because God put it there. He's sovereign over it all, Christian. Why? What's his point? Well, but before we get there, excuse me. Um, God uh, causes uh, provision to be made for his children right from the beginning, right? Watering, seed, farmer, uh, table. This reminds me, though, of John 12, 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Why do I say that that reminds me of this? Well, as I mentioned, the plan of God is that He would have worshipers and that His Son would be adored by a people. That's the plan of God. That's why there is, is an existence. It's for His worship. That's the fruit. So how do we get to the fruit of the worship of the Son of God? Well, God provided a seed, right? The, the, the grain of wheat that is the body of Christ, the, the, the God-man, that grain of wheat had to fall to the earth and die so that there might be worshipers. And God, declaring the end from the beginning, decided, I will have so-and-so out, and he had your name in mind, Christian. He said, I will have you worship me at the end. Well, how are we going to get there? I provided a seed. And I have put that seed into the ground. I have, I, I have killed that seed so that it might sprout and bear much fruit. And you're that fruit, Christian. You see, even in our salvation, he is sovereign over it all. He has a plan for everything. And he provides every step along the way. Why does he do this? Well, it says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So, the parallel here is drawn to us. As God supplies seed to the sower for the purpose of supplying bread to eat, so God also supplies you with money for the purpose of supplying for those in need. That's what it says. Uh, notice the parallel. Uh, again, as God... Uh, back in 2 Corinthians 9, he who supplies a seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. So who are you? You're the sower, right? Your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What's, what's the harvest of your righteousness? That's the parallel to the bread for food, right? So uh, as God supplies a seed to the farmer, he supplies money to your account, let's say, 
He provides for you uh, earthly wealth, just as he supplies seed to the sower. Now, what's the purpose of that seed? Is it just to go into the barn? Is the, is the farmer, the sower, supposed to just eat the seed? No. He's supposed to plant it so that there might be bread, right? So also God supplies for your needs. Why? So that you can hoard it and store it? No, so that you might plant it, that it might bear a harvest of righteousness. What does that mean? What does that mean? Again, the, the, the harvest of your righteousness come, connects back to verse 9. It is your acts of generosity, your righteous acts of generosity. That's what he's been talking about the whole time. This ministry, this work, this generosity. Uh, the purpose of God's supply for you is that it would result in righteous generosity, just as the purpose of God supplying seed is that there be bread on the table. Just as God gives uh, you money, he, gave, he gives seed to the farmer. And just as a farmer is not meant to hoard the seed but use it, for a productive result, so also God gives you your provision, not so that you simply hoard it, but that you use it for a productive result. Again, it's this theme of being a conduit for the grace of God. That's what it boils down to. So the harvest of your righteousness, uh, this, is, this is where it's... Um, this is where this verse is abuse. They leave out of your righteousness. The seeker-sensitive church, the health and wealth and prosperity kind of preaching that is just a, a cancer in the American church. And we're exporting this to third world countries. This teaching that, you know, if you plant a seed, you're going to reap a harvest. And what they mean is if you, you know, if you give... 20, you'll reap 100. Or if you give 100, you'll reap 1,000. Right? And it's just abuse. But the harvest is not your riches. The harvest is righteousness. And what's the righteousness? It's the good deeds. What's the good deeds? It's your generosity. That's the righteousness. That's the harvest. That's the purpose of God supplying you, not with seed, but with money, so that you would be generous. He says, you will be enriched in everything for all generosity. He, he, Paul here is basically saying the same thing in a different way, in a more short and concise and precise sentence. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity. Now, in the English, it can, sound a, it can be a little misleading. You could read it as saying, you will get rich in every way because of your generosity. And that's how some people interpret that. But it doesn't say that. When it says you will be enriched in everything for all generosity, the word for... For all generosity is the same word in verse 8 where it says that grace abounds to you. 
And also in verse 8, abundance for every good work. And then again in verse 10, bread is for food. The for there means unto or for the purpose of. So the promise here is you will be enriched in everything for the purpose of all generosity. That's the purpose of God's provision. Turn with me to Malachi. You might be thinking, where on earth is Malachi? It's the last book of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And we're going to be looking briefly here at verse 8, excuse me, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. I want to read it because it's just, uh, if I just say it, it will sound, I will sound like a health and wealth preacher. <laughs> but this is God's promise. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. God is rebuking his people because they're being stingy. That's the context. They're, they're, they're neglecting God's offering and they're not giving towards the kingdom, not giving towards the temple. And he says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Wow. How would you like, how would you like God to say that to you? You're robbing me. He goes on, But you say, How have you robbed you, God? What do you mean? And he says, In tithes, and contributions. That's how you're robbing me. Because you're not giving me what is due. As we saw in the weeks before, you're not giving me the honor that's due me. And he says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. That's why things aren't going well, because you're robbing God, he says. Verse 10, he dares his people. He says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And you can insert, I dare you. You think your money's tight. I dare you, God says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me. There's a dare. Test me. It's the only place in Scripture where God gives you permission to test him. Test me in this. Try me, God says. Test me now in this, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and empty out for you a blessing until it is beyond enough. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not corrupt the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field fail to bear, says Yahweh of hosts. God will provide for you if you obey Him, Christian. He promises He will provide for you beyond enough. You'll have enough to where it's like, I'm trying to shovel it to the kingdom, but He has a bigger shovel. And, and, and you'll be freed and liberated even more to be even more generous because God has a bigger shovel than you and He keeps giving back. And, he, and that's the point. But if... if and he knows your heart. If, if you say, well, I'm going to give so that I get, and then when I get, I'm keeping, he's not going to give. He's not going to do this because that breaks the pattern. You see? And he says, I dare you. 
See if I won't provide for you. And see if, see if I won't make your shoes last longer and your car run longer than it should. See if I won't provide for you so that even when there's a recession, you're the one that's kept at your job. He dares you and says, see if I won't do that. I will, he says. I'll rebuke the devourer. See, the promise here is that God will enrich the faithful believer for the purpose of all generosity. Martin Luther said, uh, I, have, I have had many things in my hands that I lost. The things that I place in the hands of God, I still possess. You see, the purpose of your generosity, Christian, is not so that you'll leave behind a legacy. Don't be generous so that they'll hang a plaque or lay a brick with your name on it. The credit is to God. Back in, back in our passage, the last little phrase. You'll be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. It all goes back to Him. Why? Because it all came from Him in the first place. That's where we started, the abundant grace of God, remember? So it comes from Him, we're the conduit, it goes to the needy, and then, and then from that, praise and thanksgiving goes back to God, not to you. Why? Because you didn't really provide for those needs. God did. He just used you as a vessel, as a conduit. Paul calls here the church in Corinth and us to generously and faithfully give so that others will give thanks to God, not you. And this has been the consistent focus throughout the passage. Again, verse 8. God is the ultimate source of His gracious provision. And then verse 10, God is the one who faithfully provides. So therefore, in verse 11, thanksgiving goes to God. God is the one who deserves the credit. And that's where he goes in verse 12. Many thanksgivings are given to God. Verse 13, the result is that people would glorify God for your generosity. Ultimately, the purpose of God's faithful supply for you is His own glory. So, Christian, you get to be a part of that. You get to be a conduit for the grace of God. God is generous. And His provision is a provision of grace. His supply for you, Christian, is a purposeful supply. So I ask you, if somebody were to look in on your life, are you more like Ebenezer Scrooge? Where you hoard and scrape and are closed up towards those in need around you? Or are you more like your Heavenly Father? May we be perfect as He is perfect. May we fulfill all righteousness that God has for us. These are the good deeds that God has set out before you, Christian. May you find the grace of God to walk in those good deeds. And dear sinner, if you don't know the Lord today, I hope that you're like that beggar on the outside 
of a restaurant on a cold winter night that looks in through the glass window and sees people laughing and feasting, but you're hungry and you're in need. What you need, dear friend, is not God to simply put food on your table, though He does do that. What you need is for God to richly provide for you salvation. And He has. Remember, He gave His seed. He gave the Son and killed Him so that He might bear much fruit, so that you might be saved. Turn from your sin Place your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. And then enjoy the rich provision of all your spiritual and soul needs through Christ. And then just watch as He provides for you as a dear child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for these rich truths. Lord, You want us to be confident in Your love. You want us to to find security, not in our savings account or our 401k. You want us to find security in the omnipotence of our God. Help us, Lord, to reorient uh, where our security is placed, where our comfort is found, where our pleasures are found, Lord. Help us to reorient it to you and Christ, to the kingdom of Christ, to his church. Oh, Lord, give us a heart for your name in this world. And thank you, Lord, that as we do that, you promise to richly provide for us. Oh, Lord, you dare us to be more generous than you, and it's never going to happen. And so, Lord, I I pray that we would be faithful uh, in our generosity, faithful in our giving. Lord, may, may we first establish that pattern as a church, where there's a dependable giving towards each one of us, from each one of us. And then from there, may we grow in our faith, in your provision, and grow in our generosity. Lord, continue to work in our hearts, Lord. Continue to provide for this church. We trust you because you love us. And because you told us, we can trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to sing.